You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 10. The April Ball. Washington Post article, An Evening with Power. Written by Raven, April 15th, 1883. On the outskirts of the city, a cab ride through darkened, tree-lined avenues, the Gillum Mansion last night was a shining beacon, beckoning the most influential moths in Washington to come fluttering in out of the night. This building stood abandoned for a time, tendrils of ivy creeping up its walls and through the open windows while the Wendigo prowled our former homes. After the city was retaken three years ago, this site was selected for restoration, to play host to events like the one I attended this evening. It is a bastion of old-world American gentry. Walking inside was like stepping back in time and occupying a land untroubled by this plague. A golden country where chivalry ruled the roost. Men were men, ladies were ladies, and a lot of people just plain weren't invited at all. America didn't like to think it had a class structure. That was to preserve the antiquated countries we came from. It was what we left behind in the great agreement, that a nation could be founded where all men are created equal. We put pay to that immediately by importing slaves who weren't considered men, by waging war on the native population as we pushed them back and away from the land we wanted for ourselves. The political class made all of our overarching decisions, influenced greatly by those in control of business. These truths were not self-evident, no matter how fast we held them. All men may have been created equal, but the ladder we climb is easier for a chosen few than for the rest, rendering that ideal of equality void. But then something happened which altered the flow of this grand fabrication. The Wendigo showed up, and he didn't care how much was in your pocketbook. He just wanted to eat you. The lion's share of rich landowners, industrialists, bankers, magnates, and general dandies did not survive the storm. Their blessed existences were predicated upon the assurance that everybody around them agreed they were the most important people who ever lived. When you're fleeing for your lives, leaving behind houses, land, commerce, industry, and the very concept of money, suddenly those people become a lot less important they become soft little unskilled complainers on the fringe of your group, weighing in with all their self-interest, without much to contribute to survival situations. None of their accumulated wealth meant anything anymore, and their bubbles of power given integrity by consensus popped soundlessly, not even leaving a vacuum behind because so much fresh horror had already rushed in to take their place. But here, in this opulent shindig, the last vestiges of that fallen kingdom reunited, accompanied by the new money, the ones who have climbed that ladder over the hardest years and found themselves at the top. It is an uneasy mingling, pregnant with resentment. And this evening we were all here to celebrate and investigate one thing, the Steamheart Expedition and its seven intrepid crew. And if you've been reading my column for the past two weeks, you'll know that one of those seven is myself. And it was high time to meet the other six. Abigail. 
In the vestibule, Sarah, Truth, Harry, Annie, and I stood assembled, mustering our fortitude for a grand entrance. The house was alive with lights, music, and the gabble of voices, and scented laurels lined the driveway, the aromas of which reminded me inevitably of Weirwood. It was by far the fanciest building I'd ever set foot in. The kind of place with winged stone babies on the ivory walls and all sorts of buttresses where the ceiling stretched up above you, supported by Grecian columns. The floor was a checkerboard expanse, and even finding a place to sit down to escape the heady rush of party feelings, you felt like all eyes would be upon you. Truth hitched up her skirt and strode out in front of us to address the group. All right, ladies, you know your partners, you know to stay close to them, but don't become an accessory. Let Sarah, Thomas, and I guide you where we can. There's a time and place for fun and games, and it's not at parties. When we go in there, I want every congressman, every captain of industry, everybody to see you all for what you are. Nothing short of the next great hope for our nation. Strong, intelligent, brave, beautiful, wildly charismatic. Able to perceive our shared goals and push forward to a future where against great adversity, those goals are reached together. Make no mistake, ladies, we are here to work. We are going to do our jobs. We are going to inspire. You are the woman. These dresses are your sword and your shield, your pen and your ink. You will achieve with charm and persuasion what a man cannot do with force. They are the hammer. We are the scalpel. Do you understand? Work! We agreed in unison, taking deep breaths as we stepped through the double doors. Inside, Thomas Arlington stood at the head of the party of men who would be accompanying us. He was still wearing his red jacket, the same as Sarah was clad in her blue one. Only now he was sporting black suit pants and shirt and a black bow tie. He looked somewhat magnificent. The significance of this protective clothing hit me suddenly, though. Who did he and Sarah think would be lurking at a venue as fine as this, armed and ready to shoot him? It made me feel unsafe. Besides which, if you wanted to kill someone here, it would be far easier to just spike their drink. Ain't no armor can counter that. Next to him, Major Butler stepped up in a penguin tuxedo with a white bow tie. His hair was smoothed with pomade, and his mustache was trimmed and groomed. He looked a proper gentleman and I spotted Annie's eyes light up when she saw him, an expression of pride and delight that he entirely mirrored for her. I envied them both. Beside him, Jeremy Pine stood awkwardly in what truth would irritably inform me later, like I could possibly care, was a daytime lounge suit. It was an olive checker pattern, and he looked like he wanted to take it off. Beside him, Donald McTavish had gone all out, sporting a red and blue plaid kilt, complete with a matching sash and something he called a sparring. It looked like he'd fastened a little furry purse to his crotch, but it also seemed a handy place to stash porridge for if you got hungry later. I'd never seen a man in a skirt before, but coupled with his smart navy jacket and his deadly serious expression, it just didn't seem as funny as I'd have imagined. And beside him, in cream jacket, black pants, black shirt, and black tie, cleaned up nicer than I've ever seen him before, stood James. I was sporting a green satin-covered eye patch made from offcuts of the dress I was wearing. 
Seeing how neat and piano black his was annoyed me. I felt like I was now attracting more attention to my strange face. He looked amazing, and I looked like a southern belle got careless with the eyelash tweezers. I blinked and looked down at my dress, and as I did so I could feel him watching me. He nodded with approval and extended his hand as the pleasant music drifted out of the ballroom behind him. Shall we? My behavior at the dress fit and trickled back to me, and I took his outstretched hand and moved beside him. At the doorway, there was a footman in his accelerating fifties, dressed like a drummer boy and blessed with a face devoid of mirth. Behind him were over a hundred guests, all gussied up in their fineries, all glancing toward our group at the door. They stood close to the lavishly laid-out banquet of a buffet. They twirled in elegant dances over by the band, and they flanked every exit to other rooms. A flurry of whispers broke out as we appeared. This was why we were late to the party. Everybody had to be here already so they could eyeball us, size up these figureheads of America. I suddenly began to feel roastingly hot in this dress. The footman gestured an overt hand at truth. All right, now take your partner by the arm, she instructed us. Thomas and Sarah stepped forward, and the footman called out so that all the room could hear. Director Thomas Arlington and Deputy Director Sarah Arlington of the National Intelligence Agency. As if anyone in this room didn't know who they were, the two of them made their way through and began conversing almost immediately. Major Frank Butler and Captain Annie Oakley of the Assemblage of Cartographers. I'd never heard it called that. Annie smiled in a way I'd not seen before, with a childlike excitement, craning her neck to take in the full scale of the ballroom. She pulled Butler in tight and they ventured forth. Seeing this, Truth grabbed McTavish's hand and they stepped up to the plate. Agent Donald McTavish of the National Intelligence Agency, Department of... The footman paused for a moment, wrestling with self-consciousness. Department of Mysteries and the Paranormal. And Miss Truth Arlington, Communications Director for the White House. Truth and McTavish filed in. Agent Jeremy Pines, Department of the Paranormal. Miss Harriet Arlington, Engineer in Research, Development and Technologies for the National Intelligence Agency. His eye on McTavish's back. Jeremy gently led Harry, keeping her steady, through the doorway and out into the crowd beyond. James and I stood with new arrivals gathering behind us. Corporal James Penrose. Doctor. Doctor James Penrose of the Assemblage of Cartographers and Sergeant Abigail Gray. Admiral. Sergeant Abigail Gray of the Assemblage of Cartographers. Demote me again and I'll have you swab the decks. James's arm was shaking a little. He was trying his best to contain laughter. This made me smile as well. And for the first time, I felt like we could do this job, provided we didn't have to be painfully respectful of all these stuffed shirts. We made a beeline for truth, and I intercepted her before she could greet a gaudily medal-endowed colonel. What's the deal with Pines and McTavish? James craned in with interest and we observed Donald crossing over to speak quietly with Jeremy by the fountain. They are, to all intents and purposes, married. But this crowd frown on that kind of coupling. Exactly. So you presented them with a lie they could swallow. 
We told the line that says men and women will move forward into a bright future and have lots of babies. Look at those two. Jeremy smiled through the tears he was clearly fighting back, and Donald patted his arm. What the fuck kind of world are we rebuilding where they can't be together? What does love mean in your textbook view on life, Truth? Love is a vital tool in our kit. But when it comes down to a choice of asking too much from all of these people, and asking a lot from a few of them, I'm always going to go for the latter. Dance with me, James. She took his hand. I thought he was my partner. I need to show him off. And in practice, his waltzing skills were impressive, so that's what we're going to do now. Come on, Penrose. Could I have a moment to- We're dancing now. You go mingle. She twirled him away, leaving me fuming by the volivons. I'd been spotted by a man of advancing years and belly. He was wearing a maroon suit that was one size too small and bore a sash with the American flag wind in its circumference. He also sported a large gold medallion, a top hat, and a great big bushy beard. His little sausage fingers darted to the plates to snaffle a cracker smudged with goose liver, disappearing it promptly into his munching food hole. Ah, miss, may I offer you a canopy? They're all the rage in France, I hear. Thank you, I had canopies for lunch. I'm just gonna... With whom am I speaking? I'm Abigail Gray, one of the poor saps being sent south in that steam-powered death trap. And you must be the mayor of Washington. Oh, this chain? (laughs) No, I'm not mayor yet, but this is my solid gold promise to you. The name's Dutch Van Tassel, and I will be campaigning for president this very year. I find nothing more fascinating than politics and political intrigue, and as it turns out, I'm exceedingly gifted in that regard. My intention once I'm in office will be to bring back the dollar, do away with this military credit silliness, and start America's businesses back up again. Oh, you're that guy. Major Butler mentioned you in passing. An honorable man. I'm sure he said nice things. Yep. Where's your associate, Maurice? Alas, I could not gain Maurice access to a gathering of such finery. He's very much a street-level fellow. But it pays to know the man with the ear of the poor. No shit, I heard he was a gangster. Oh, stuff and nonsense. Maurice is an entrepreneur. I thought with military credit that pretty much ruled out expensive business on the side. Precisely my point. We need to bring this country back to a state where intrepid investors like Maurice can thrive. So he's bankrolling your campaign? He is one of the contributors. But there has been a great deal of interest in my ascendance. Does he get to sleep in the president's bed, or are you going to organize him a little apartment in the city? <laughs> well, now, where did such a pretty girl like you get such a head for politics? Oh, I hate politics. Bores the crap out of me. You know what? Me too. We are very much alike, you and I. No, we're not. And you just said the exact opposite, so at least one of those is an outright lie. <clears throat> um. <clears throat> Uh, well, yes, um, but I have many other things we could talk about. Sergeant Gray, the director would like to see you. A Chinese lady in a black-and-white robe-style dress had just appeared over Van Tassel's shoulder. She did not look at him, but gestured firmly across the room to where Thomas Arlington stood, his hands in his pockets, looking daggers at this overstuffed 
buffoon. I believe we have met. Uh, Miss Ling Ling, was it? My name is Li. You are never to speak to this woman again, Mr. Van Tassel. Why, we were just having a friendly chat. About overthrowing the very fabric of what the Grand Administration has been working towards for years. Yes, I mean, <clears throat> no, I mean, just pushing our nation back to a state of... Finish your food, drain your drink, and leave within four minutes. Well, this is outrageous! I paid a hefty ransom for my invitation to come here tonight. Madam, I am working the floor the same as everyone here. Your invite was not written for you. Thus, you were not invited. Three and a half minutes. Sleep well, Mr. Van Tassel. Good luck on the campaign trail. I waved my goodbye as this subtly impressive lady took me by the arm and led me to Thomas. She stood by his side and kept a watchful eye on the periphery. The director glanced at the small bag I'd brought with me. Have you got your handbook in there? How did you know? You're a woman with priorities. Dance with me. I'd expected some kind of reprimand, but this caught me enough by surprise to accept the offer. His arm slid gently behind my back and he drew us into the flow. I spotted James still dancing with truth and allowed Thomas to lead. This was strange. I wasn't sure where I could place this man. I knew I disliked truth and her pushiness and ideals which felt calculated and even jaded to me. But I could tell where she got her assertiveness. Thomas was tall. Not many men can get this close without feeling intimidated by my height and attitude. But he moved me about with a deafness and surety that I found oddly comforting. His eyes were serious and intense, and once again I knew that the qualities I felt drawn to were shared by James. This is a punishing and complex dance. And I know how heavy the pressure is upon you to perform it. I'm scared of putting a foot wrong. But at the same time, you want to do so on purpose. Just to see what happens. Yeah. I sympathize. I held his hand a little tighter as the dance got faster. We passed by James and Truth, and I caught his one good eye as he was turned away. The ladies and gentlemen around us spun and swayed in their own graceful stride, the material of their clothing shimmering in the soft electric candlelight. How long are we expected to keep moving like this? As long as we can. For the first time, I detected in him the traces of sadness. Butler. Annie and I sat at one of the tables which lined the cooler, more shadowy side of the hall with Harry and Jeremy as the dance played out. Sarah had taken Donald's hand and they were engaged in a surprisingly lively variation of a waltz, his kilt flaming out to match her dress, something Jeremy watched with a bittersweet expression. 
James and Abigail kept appearing and disappearing, and I noticed Harry was looking that way with a face that wasn't unlike Jeremy's. It seemed the good doctor had caught her eye at some stage. This made complete sense to me, considering how inhumanly fast and intricate the brains were on the pair of them. Pain me to think of her being sad and unable to express her intentions out of shyness and uncertainty as to how this alien system worked. Would you like to dance, miss? I asked. M me Sure. We can get you out on the floor, and if it comes to swapping partners, you can go with one of the other gentlemen of your choosing. Uh, okay. If that's how things are done. She looked from me to the spiraling throng. Annie smiled broadly, then nudged Pines. Will you show a lady a good time? She offered her hand. I'll get you close to him. Thank you. And with that, we led the pair of them out to the floor. James. After the waltz finally ended, I stepped back and bowed to truth. Excellent job, Doctor. May I go and catch my breath? Rest later. Next we need to do the Vasilvian. She announced, giving a firm nod to the band who immediately began playing clamorous German folk music. I sighed as Annie, Butler, Pines and Harry approached. Mind if we trade partners? Butler asked, taking hold of Truth and whisking her away before she could protest fully. Harry was left standing awkwardly in front of me. Don't worry, I said, wrapping my arm around her shoulder and gently turning her body. I believe I remember this one. It's very easy. We only have to go left and right together, then circle each other and make our turns quite visually pronounced. So just step with me and watch what everyone else is doing out of the corner of your eye. Well, that sounds okay. I can copy them, provided they give me the blueprints. And so we did just that. Our eyes on the other dancers, keeping careful time and matching our feet. Eventually, we found the rhythm and got to a section where she moved in close, holding my arms around her. Are you quite all right? Sure. You're a good dancer. I'm having fun. Well, good. Are you apprehensive about tomorrow? I'm looking forward to it. Doing this was so much scarier. Likewise. Thank you for helping me, James. You're more than welcome. As I said this, Pines and Abigail moved past, keeping in close proximity to Donald and Annie. It's such a shame they won't let us dance with who we really want to. My eye lingered on Abby in her elegant green dress, looking more beautiful than I had ever seen her, red hair cascading down bare shoulders like wildfire. It is a shame. When this second round ended, Thomas Arlington held the attention of the room. Ladies and gentlemen, he called out with surprising volume, may I offer my gratitude to you all for attending this evening. We are, of course, blessed to welcome the crew of Steamheart, who will be departing tomorrow at noon to carry our hopes and dreams across America, and perhaps learn more as they do so about what we face. He introduced each of us by name and rank. It was unexpectedly invigorating for me, I have anticipated contempt from them, or a complete lack of faith in our abilities to pull this mission off. But what we received were respectful rounds of applause, and even some cheers for the more famed among our number. Gentlemen gave polite, approving nods. Ladies whispered to one another as they looked my way, and I found myself blushing. Abigail. I fucking hated it. 
After all the pomp and ceremony, we dispersed, and Thomas drew me over to a tall, gray-haired fellow in full, magnificent Navy dress uniform. Sergeant Abigail Gray, this is General Nathaniel Curtis. Pleased to meet you, ma'am. The man smiled, his eyes twinkling above a silver horseshoe of a mustache. His voice was gravelly and resonant, his tone respectful. I liked him immediately and immensely. I read about your endeavors at the Battle of Weirwood in the handbook. He rumbled, just as the one in my bag was being brought into the light. Sergeant Gray is acquiring signatures out of respect for everyone else printed within these pages. Thomas lightly took the book from me and opened it. Would you do her this honor? Absolutely. He signed away and handed it back. It was becoming more precious to me with every edition, and I cradled it in my hands, blowing on the ink and not knowing what to say. Rudeness and coarseness would come to me naturally. Irreverent dismissal of protocol was no problem. Neither were awkward, gushing admiration or animated, lively and colloquial conversation. But mature discourse in context of this dignified man's station was an art I might never master. Seems like you rose the rank of sergeant pretty quickly, since you joined up only last fall. Well, like you read, sir, I can keep my head under fire. Turns out that's quite a valuable currency. I realized that with my written deeds playing emissary, I had nothing to prove to this man. I kind of wish I could get everyone I meet to read that passage before I talk to him. Stand me in good stead with strangers. Deciding I needed some air, I retreated out to a wide stone balcony. Up on the solid balustrade sat an old fellow with long gray hair, sporting scruffy leather clothing, an intricately woven haversack, and a feathered charcoal-colored hat. A cigarette in a holder was clamped between his teeth as he scribbled furiously in a ledger. He glanced up and regarded me through green-lensed sunglasses. Taking a break from the ritualistic festivities. I just needed to get my head out of there. It's a sociological necessity, though, what they're performing here. You stare too long into a hopeless situation without doing a little dance. And you go stir-crazy. He went back to his writing but smiled wryly the cigarette tilting upward diagonally as he did so. I decided to introduce myself. <clears throat> I'm Sergeant Abigail. Abigail Gray, I know. One of the pair of carriers of the endowment, heretofore referred to as Project Starlight. Whoa. Some of that even I didn't know. I interviewed Agent Pines a few minutes ago. His strange, mechanical-looking pen, etched with more feathers, was working away furiously. Clearance from Arlington. The male one. His eyes rested on me again. Don't worry, I won't put that in the Washington Post. Yet. I'll just say I met with Abigail Gray and she felt about the mission. Oh no. I was supposed to say something. I inhaled and thought as he studied me. <clears throat> Raring to go? She was shit scared. But hit it well. Please don't put that. I'll just say you feel ready. I'm not, though. Afraid of what's out there? Who? Very good. You're right to be. There's some real mixed pockets of humanity. What name do you go by? Raven. Oh, you're the seventh member of the team. Pleased to meet you then. Yes, yes, hello. He waved his arm irritably at the pleasantries, 
then took my outstretched hand between his thumb and forefinger and jiggled it. Quitting salutations and all that shit. Not a people person. All people are people people. Just some aren't personable persons. You speak in riddles. You listen too straight. I do not. We shall see. Are you looking forward to being trapped in a goddamn tin can for months on end with all of us? Unable to get off or go back? Mm, I could use a holiday. He nodded, still not looking at me. Besides which, even if it sends us all over the edge and spiraling into madness, it will provide ample fodder for the book I'm writing about the last days of mankind. been listening to episode 10 of Steamheart, The April Ball, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray and Lee Ying Long, performed by Sharon Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Truth Arlington, performed by Theo Lee. Sarah Arlington, performed by Maureen Foley. James Penrose, Raven, Nathaniel Curtis, and Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alexander Shaw. Dutch Van Tassel, performed by Lou Fernandez. Footman, performed by Matthew Ramsey. And Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Where the West Begins, composed by Ferenc Hegedus of Shockwave Sound. Brandenburg Concerto, Sinfonia, and Cello Suite No. 1, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. Divertimento, composed by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Waltz, composed by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Canon in D Major, composed by Johann Pachelbel. All here, orchestrated by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, who also composed Virtutes and Ossuary. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco. Matthew A. Seibert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thomas and Sarah have 12 days left. <laughs>